From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and today we're going to talk about, well, a whole lot of things, actually, but I'm going to pretend that the podcast is about one thing, and that is R. I wouldn't say the letter R, but the sound R, whatever that is. And by the way, in the Slate Plus segment, yes, we're always going to have that. From now on, you get to learn all sorts of things about the word can, about knowledge, about spelling, and about how difficult spelling reform would be, part two. You don't have to listen to the ads, but you can only hear these things if you have Slate Plus. You cannot listen to it online. It's not there. You have to subscribe at slate.com slash lexicon plus. You all ask a lot about R, and there's a lot about R, and I tend to give rather shruggy answers because this is a very multifarious subject. Well, I'm not going to shrug this time. What is it about R? And a lot of the curiosity about R that a lot of you have seems to be based on the fact that R is written, but then so often in so many languages, you pronounce the R as something quite different from what you would expect and, you know, often not really an R at all. And so you wonder, well, what is the R doing on the page? What is it with R? Why is it that when you go from language to language, you often really have to pay attention to your R's and how it's different from R R? And the first problem in attacking this is that it can be kind of hard from the perspective of a phonetician, as we call it, to even say exactly what an R is. What a P is, i.e. P, that's fairly clear, although there are different kinds of P. But R is more of a, of a realm than any one thing. You could say one way of ballparking it is that if you think about it, L and R, those sounds are kind of vowely compared to, say, a P or to, or there's a lot of sonicness in them. And if you think of there being a space in between something that's just very much a vowel like ah, and something that's very much a consonant like p, well, if you stick ol and er in there, then ol is more like a consonant than er. Er is more like a vowel than ol. The R realm is more vowel-y than the L realm. So that's one way that you can kind of narrow it down. But that's not great. And some phoneticians really say that there's properly no such thing as R at all, that it's really a kind of a fuzzy category in terms of how we talk about it. Kind of like you know how a tomato is technically a fruit, but you kind of don't want to know because it's in salad and it's a vegetable and, and there you go. R is kind of like that. But it is a very vague concept. And as you might expect, that means that there are going to be a whole lot of different kinds of R's. And so the R, the default vanilla R of English, that's just one kind of R. And so if you see a language written and there's an R, letter R on the page, we can't assume that that's going to mean R because there's so many different ways of being an R, of being a rhotic to give you some vocabulary there, R-H-O-T-I-C. Or you hear it in talks, roticity, we're talking about roticity. And that's basically Rness. All sorts of R's. One of them, for example, let's say that you're doing an R-ish business with your mouth, but then you also let your tongue hit your alveolar ridge very quickly. Now, not occupying it quickly, so not like a D, 
but just kind of, huh? Just, huh? That's called a flap. You can flap your R's, and that happens in various kinds of English. We actually associate it with a British way of speaking, for example. This is the one that I always think of. Let's do, and one just should in general, let's do the movie All About Eve. It's 1950. It is early in the movie. Yes, Diana, I know. <laughs> You like this. It's early in the movie. And Eve Harrington is getting the Sarah Siddons Award. And this elderly actor who has, you know, what seems to essentially be a British accent is giving the award. And listen to the way he says the R in Harrington. Tonight her dream has come true. And henceforth we shall dream the same of her. Honored members, ladies and gentlemen. For distinguished achievement in the theater, the Sarah Siddons Award to Miss Eve Harrington. Now, what's interesting about that is that the actor is Walter Hampton, and he was born in 1879. You would swear he was British, partly because of that last name, Hampton. No, he was born in Brooklyn. That was an American who was trained in the old-timey idea that to be a stage actor, you had to try to sound kind of British. And so, Eve Harrington. That's a flapped R. Or Japanese. Japanese has an R that is frustrating. It's where the Japanese suddenly start <laughs> laughing at you, and they're not given to that. Languages differ culturally. Speakers of languages differ culturally. Some people love it when you try to speak their language. They'd rather talk to you with you butchering their language than talking to you in their English, which is better than your version of theirs. Italians are very nice about letting you just rumble along, messing up. They're happy to hear somebody speaking Italian. There are other Europeans, and I'm not going to name them. We don't need to take this out to the streets, but there are Europeans where you can tell they'd just really rather not hear their language messed up. They tend to speak English well, especially if you're an educated person and you're meeting educated people. They're just going to give you the English. They're perplexed that you would even try to speak their language beyond maybe venturing one word. The Japanese are like Italians. Boy, do they get a kick out of you speaking their language. But then when you hit the R, all of a sudden you start getting jeered at. Their word for food, what you want to say is riori. That's in a good American accent, riori. But no, it's not riori. It's like it's this weird R. And really, you know, if you're over about two, <laughs> you just can't get it. I remember trying and trying. It was a great way to diffuse things between me and a girlfriend I had about 700 years ago. Just some, and you can't. That's because their R is more like an L than ours. But exactly where? Hard to find it. And you need a lot of training. So there are a lot of different kinds of R's. And then R gets complicated, too, in that often what you pronounce when there's an R on the page isn't properly an R at all. You've left the whole rhotic territory. And so French is the best known example of that in that the R is this thing back in the throat. It's this. Ugh. And so um, if somebody's named Robert 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 and somebody says, put your R back in the throat. But frankly, if the R is that far back in the throat, it ceases to be an R. It's like somebody telling you, well, whistle from the back of your throat. Whatever that would be would not be whistling. Cutest thing that happened this week. My daughter is seven. I whistle compulsively all the time. So she thinks of it as something that normal people do. She actually mastered it this week. You can't teach somebody how to whistle any more than you can teach an American how to pronounce meat in Japanese. But all of a sudden this week she started going 
she actually figured it out. But if you were doing it from the back of your throat, it wouldn't be whistling. It would be shittling or something like that. Same way, you can't have an R in the back. Once you get back there, it's not rhotic. It's what's called a fricative. It's one of the many hissy sounds. And so, for example, I can go like this, and that's an alveolar fricative. I can go like this, and that is a labiodental fricative. Remember the whole business about the Fs and the Vs. I can go further back, my soft palate, my velum, and I can go, and in English, we don't think of that as a sound, but if you want to pretend that you like classical music, you say, Bach, that's a velar fricative. Well, you could take it further back. Why not? There are further things back there. And so instead of, you might go, and then you're doing it in the region of your uvula. It's a uvular fricative. That's what it is. Now, you wonder, if you have to do this fricking with your uvula, then why is it an R on the page? And that's because originally it was in Latin. It was. In early French, it was. In French dialects that we rarely encounter, it still is. But that happened to the R sound because, as we know, languages are always changing. And, you know, it's a funny thing. No one quite understands why R's became uvular fricatives in various parts of Europe. You find that in many Germans and a lot of Scandinavian languages. It just jumped all over the place, this business of instead of and you can't say why. But the funny thing is, it went from city to city. And so often it would skip the countryside and go from city to city. First of all, you know, why did it skip the countryside? And then you think, well, it must have been people of influence. But then you also wonder what kind of influence? You know, if you heard somebody going, why would you want to do that instead of R? Frankly, I wouldn't want to do that. I don't like doing it now. It doesn't feel right in English. It's something you do in order to pronounce French properly. But for some reason, that spread around and no one is sure whether it started in French or whether it started somewhere else. I'll bet you it started in French, but that's me opinionizing on the basis of no authority, something I am unfortunately quite familiar with. But it jumped around. And oh, by the way, I'm Nuno Raimundo. I'm going to fix something that you justifiably complained about. Brazilian Portuguese has that same uvular fricative. Portuguese is a romance language. It is a wonderful language. And so, for example, R-E-C-I-F-E -E is not Recife. You're thinking, well, it's something like Spanish because Portuguese is something like Spanish. So you think, ah, Recife. No, no, it's ha because they have that uvular fricative. And so ha, it's Recife. And it's not sife, the A becomes the E because the E came before. And so that happens. And so on the page is recife, but the way it's said is recife. That's how these things go. All these things are perfectly normal. Language changes and the writing stays where it is. And that also means, for example, that there'll be an R sitting on the page in a language that you don't pronounce at all. Some exotic language like, for example, British English or depending on when in time you're talking about and where, American English. But think about it. British. C-A-R. Now, in good American, we say car. That feels normal. But of course, in many Britishes, it's a ka. It's a ka. Well, where's the R? Why isn't it spelled C-A or C-A-H? Ka. 
Well, that's because there used to be an R, but then, especially by you know, the beginning of the 1800s, that was gone among people who were considered to quote unquote matter, i.e., who wrote things. And next thing you know, you've got the R written, but nobody pronounces it. Hair, well, it's hair. You know, think of about every second person in the Harry Potter movies. It's not hair, it's hair. Well, why is, why is there an R? Because the R was originally there and writing is conservative. And so next thing you know, you have these R's. And of course, it's, you know, it's here too. And not only in, say, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, but think about Franklin D. Roosevelt. So we have nothing. Actually, I don't need to do that, Mike, the crackly effect. We have nothing to, well, come to think of it, Mike, you could just play Franklin D. Roosevelt saying it. Why do I have to imitate him? Here is Franklin D. Roosevelt talking about fear. And listen to the way he said it. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. There was an R on the page, but he had what's called R-less dialect. Did a show about that. It was nominally about how people talk in old movies. In any case, also then, there are R's that you pronounce that are not in writing. For example, people who say the idea is... And we Americans most associate that with people across the pond. But it happens here, too. You hear it in New England in particular. And that actually comes from overgeneralization. So much of language is about thinking of things in terms of rules and therefore making the rule go further than it used to. Let's say that you have an R-less dialect. Let's say that you're used to saying something like ka instead of car. Well, if you do, the R tends to be kept when there's a vowel coming up. And so you'll say the ka pox here. Okay, that's fine. But if you're going to talk about the car is something, then even in that R-less dialect, you'll say the car is, the R sticks around if there's a vowel coming. So as you learn to talk, you internalize a sense that there are these words that take on this R when there's a vowel coming. You're not going to put it that way. You're not conscious of it. But that is the way it's arranged in our brains. That's part of why language is fascinating. There's so much that we do subconsciously that's complicated. But that means that you might start to think, especially before you've had any contact with writing, that, well... Any word that ends in a vowel is going to have that R happen when another vowel is coming. So the idea is that might not feel right to you. If it's the car is, then it's the idea is. Next thing you know, there are these ghost R's. Nobody would write it, but it's in your speech. And so underlyingly deep down for you, there is the word car, which you pronounce ka if nothing's coming afterward or if a consonant's coming afterward. Then there's this word idea, which you pronounce idea if nothing's coming afterward or if a consonant is coming afterward, something like idea propagation. But if there's a vowel, then you pronounce what you're thinking of as the whole word. Idea is that. So you have these ghosts. Listen, for example, to this guy being British in All About Eve. And he talks about things like the theater. So he's as arless as anything. I want to say I'm hearing the kids these days saying is arless AF. He's, he's as arless AF or however you would say it. But then he says Haddington. So he doesn't say Haddington because you've got the E, you've got the vowel coming up. So Haddington, then you've got 
ours. So ghost ours. I remember somebody I knew from Boston because New England has been traditionally ourless in many parts for a long time. I saw him. She would say, I saw him. That's because of that overgeneralization that is, you know, still part of the speech of many New Englanders. So the theme here is that R is confusing, partly because R is just rather multifarious, but its multifariousness means that it's going to uniquely illustrate that writing systems lag behind the way we actually talk. It's always that way. And it means that you end up having a spelling system that doesn't make any damn sense. Charlie Brown characters can tell you about it. In, for example, a song from a boy named Charlie Brown, that wonderful 1969 Charlie Brown musical. This is the spelling song. This was written by Vince Guaraldi and Rod McEwen for some reason. And so here they are singing. I remember seeing this not when the movie came out, but somewhat afterward and thinking, wow, that's fascinating about I before E. I still remember it on the basis of this song. Here it goes. I before E, except after C. Let's see. I before E, except after H. No, I after E, after C. I before E, after, no, E before I, after C. When a word has a C for an ending, a frolic, or colic, or comic, and mimic, and picnic, you always add a K before a pending. Huh? You know, sticking at E or I or Y. Oh, sure. So, yes, spelling sucks, as I have done a show about, and yet it doesn't tend to change. Human societies tend to put up with what's on the page being vastly and even grievously different from the way people actually talk. And that's because of an inherent conservativity in what it is to be a literate human being. You know, another example of that actually is the voice acting in those Charlie Brown specials terrible. <laughs> Frankly, they always had real kids doing it. And so Charlie Brown Christmas, notice how when I say that, it's almost as if I said muffin or, or tickle or, you know, little girl or something like that. It just makes, to be American, it makes you all happy inside to think of it. But goodness gracious, those poor kids could not act. Now they are grown-ups, and I'm sure that they understand what I mean. They didn't know what they were saying yet. You can tell that they had them reading it in little snippets. I think you have a customer couldn't act. Now, if you look at the Peanuts movie recently, which warmed my heart and made me feel like gingerbread all over. So they use kids who can really act and some of it is adult. I mean, this is why we have our Nancy Cartwrights and Rusey Taylors. You know, you have women doing the boys, etc. But in those old specials, boy, they cannot act at all. And yet you wouldn't change it. I don't want there to be a redubbed Charlie Brown Christmas where the voice actors are actually reading the lines and understanding them. It should be, I think you have a customer. That's the way it's supposed to sound. That impulse, which you know, that makes no sense at all. I prefer a Charlie Brown Christmas to be poorly acted. I like it that way. We feel the same way about spelling. So, for example, say, well, our spelling system is bad. It ought to be reformed. And you go out and have a parade or something. But be careful what you ask for. Do you really want it? So, for example, girls. Yep. HBO, Lena Dunham show. Well, technically, G-I-R-L-Z. Because it's not girls, is it? It's girls. Do you really want to spell it with a Z? Would you like to see that on the screen? No. Or the word enough. Its spelling is a tragedy. It is truly an abomination. And no, but do you really want 
E-N-U-F. I don't. I would get tired of that fast. Or there's so many things about the slip between spelling and speech that we don't really perceive, but that are very real. And so, for example, more and more people in the United States are letting go of the sound all in favor of ah. It's something where if you're listening to the radio or, say, a podcast, one way that you can tell that somebody is below a certain age is by whether or not they have that tendency. And so, I mean, I caught a fish. That's what I'd say. I'm 53, born in Philadelphia. Many people these days in many parts of the country, more and more parts of the country, would say, I caught a fish. Not caught, but I caught a fish. So there's the thing that you sleep on in the army and pretend to like. That's a cot. And then you can also, you yesterday caught a fish. You can see a vulture. You can see an osprey. You can see an eagle. You can see a hawk. You can see a vulture. You can see an osprey. You can see an eagle. You can see a hawk. Hawk is the way many people would say it. What's sushi? To me, it's raw fish. For many people, it's raw fish. So that all goes to ah. The truth is that for many people, if you were going to spell the way you talk, then raw would be R-A or R-A-H or something. But it would only be for some people, and most people who talk that way aren't necessarily thinking about it. In a way, if you say raw fish, because this is a change in progress, you kind of think you're saying raw fish. You, you readily spell it R-A-W. And if somebody says you're saying raw, it's gotten to the point that many people, instead of saying aw when they see something cute, say ah. And so for me, a little kitten runs up my pants and, you know, it's kind of going, I would go, aw. For many people, the little kitten runs up your pants and you go, ah. Now, technically, that means that you're making the same sound when the kitten runs up your pants as you would if it was a tiger. Like, ah, that's what I would say if it was a tiger. But nevertheless, this is happening. Do you want it to be spelled A-H? I don't know. Or plural, pig. Pigs. Okay. Now I didn't say pigs. I said pigs. So it's a z. Buds on the trees. I wish more would come out. This is the latest spring in New York. It's as if nothing's going to happen until August. But bud, buds, not buds, buds. It's really a z. But then a pick. You have an ice pick. Ice picks. You wouldn't say ice picks. It's ice picks or butts. Let's face it. There are some in the world. But butts. So it can be a z or a s. Do you feel like attending to that difference in writing? I don't. Really, it's a very subtle thing. But if we were going to really reform our spelling system, we'd have to think about that. Otherwise, we have to be more conservative about it. Kind of like a lot of founding fathers. If they could sing, they would sing about it like this. In the musical 1776 from 1969, they're singing about their political ideology. Very catchy little tune. Come ye cool, cool, conservative men Our like may never ever be seen again We have land, cash in hand Self-command, future planned Fortune thrives, society survives In neatly ordered lives With well-endowed wives Come sing Hosanna, Hosanna in our breeding and our manner, we are cool. Come ye cool, cool, considerate set. We'll dance together to the same minuet. To the right, ever to the right, never to the left. 
forever to the right. Let our creed be never to exceed regulated speed, no matter what the need. Would you want on the page what people really do? So, for example, British people, even of a certain level in society, until not so long ago, often used don't in the third person. You see it all the time in novels such as in Dickens, where somebody like Aunt Betsy in David Copperfield says he don't. She's a proper prissy kind of person played by Edna Mae Oliver in the movie. And yet she says he don't. That was considered okay. It had a different social evaluation. I don't know whether we would want to see it portrayed, for example, in a movie. You know, we kind of want it to be cleaned up in a movie, even if people said it. And so that's usually the way it is. In the movie of David Copperfield, Edna Mae Oliver never does that. Now, in Barry Lyndon, the Kubrick film, the truly splendid Kubrick film, there is an interesting passage where Kubrick actually preserves this usage of don't among people who are not especially uneducated. This is Nora, the one who tantalizes Redmond by putting... What is it, a ribbon in between? Well, you'll have to watch the movie to see. But in any case, she, a little bit later, is dressing somebody down. And she's a woman of a certain station. And yet listen to her say, don't signify. He don't signify, as opposed to he doesn't signify. This is a rare example of somebody from this period depicted as actually uttering this kind of don't. Listen here. This is Barry Lyndon early in the film. This is Gay Hamilton. Captain Quinn, may I have the honor of introducing my cousin, Redmond Barry? Miss Brady, it would appear you have something to discuss in private with this young man. Perhaps it would be best for me to withdraw. Captain Quinn, I have nothing to discuss with my cousin in private. Miss Brady, it would appear you have a great deal to discuss in private. Good heavens, Captain Quinn, he is but a boy and don't signify any more than my parrot or lapdog. Oh, indeed. Are you then in the habit of giving... Intimate articles of your clothing to your parrot or lapdog? Isn't that odd? You, you almost kind of wish they cleaned it up into doesn't, because we don't love honesty in language as much as we often suppose. So we tolerate these distortions. Old English itself was an example of that. It is almost certain that for centuries, Old English was written in a very Old Englishy way. When actually the language that was spoken was a lot more like Chaucer, which was a lot more like the English that we speak now, which just considered ordinary to have this antique version on the page that probably nobody had spoken in centuries because that's what writing is like because there's just an inherent conservativity. That's the way it always has been. And you don't want it to change, especially because change in speech is so slow. It's barely perceptible such that you don't walk around thinking about the fact that when you see a cage full of guinea pigs, you might be saying, ah instead of awe. It's imperceptible. So there's no point at which people are going to say it's time to change this system, especially because it happens in this bit here and this bit there. So we tolerate the distortion. And part of the reason that that's so easy for us is because speaking, producing language in the psychological, clinical sense, is to a large extent based on distorting how things started. It's actually one of the things that defines what the sophistication of the human language apparatus is, as opposed to what guinea pigs do or even apes can do. You can take the most ordinary sentence and there's so much distortion from what you meant 
to what you say. So, for example, let's take a very ordinary sentence. We're going to go hang out there. Very ordinary, you know, not too formal because we want to be ordinary, but that's not super slangy either. So it's not going to be something like yo, yo, jeet yet or something like that. Just we're going to go hang out there. Okay. There's so much in that that is very different from beginning to end. So hang out, hang what, out of what? There are more literal usages of hang out, let it all hang out, whatever the it is. I tend to imagine a belly, but it could be something else. But the idea of hanging out as in spending time with intimates casually, what's the hanging? What's the out? The world may never know, but you said hang out. You have a vague sense of it having to do with the fact that hanging is kind of swinging in the breeze and taking it easy and that the hanging out might not be in your home. All that's very vague. But really, you just say hang out. It's that sequence of sounds that corresponds to what hanging out is. And you know on a certain level that the meaning is highly idiomatic and you just don't care. There's this distortion from saying hang and saying out. And not meaning anything having to do with underwear hanging on a line. You mean spending time casually with your friends. That's so different from laundry drying. And you just allow it. Gonna. You know vaguely that that's going to. So we're going to go hang out there. Gonna. Well, that puts it in the future. Well, then why did you say going to? And you didn't. You said gonna. And in a sense, gonna is this brand new word. A Martian would think there was some word gonna spelled G-U-N-N-U-H, gonna. And it has something to do with the future. And maybe the future has some kind of relationship to going because the future is something we think of ourselves as traveling into. But really, what you said was, we're going to go hang out there. You change that going to into gonna on a certain level. And you just let it happen even though that gonna wasn't about locomoting anywhere at all. You just kind of deal with it. And then finally, here's something that's a little bit in the weeds, but it's something that you might like to think about. You said, we're going to go hang out there. Okay, we're, okay, let's split that up. We are. So we are going to go hang out there. Where do you divide it up? Well, we is all by itself. Then are going to, that's another chunk. It's about are going, you know, going, well, is going, are going. So we are going to go hang out there. So if the are is part of going, then why is it that it ends up sticking and getting shorter onto the we? So why is it we're? Shouldn't it really be something like we are going to go hang out there? But that wouldn't be as easy to pronounce. And so you end up saying we're going to go hang out there, even though the er doesn't really match up with the we in the way that it matches up with the gonna. So all that just with, we're going to go hang out there. And that's just one little bit in a whole string of language that you might say. We're used to that kind of distortion, hanging out, hanging around. There's a song for this. I've wanted to use this for the whole run of the show. And now I can. This is a very obscure Gershwin song. This is from Strike Up the Band, which had editions in both 1927 and 1930. This is What's the Use of Hanging Around with You. Now, even if you don't like the show tunes, and I fully respect that a lot of you don't, I dare you to not be humming this one, at least for the next half hour 
after you hear it. This is What's the Use of Hanging Around with You, the only recording of it I know of, and this is by the Gershwins. What's the use of hanging around with you, hanging around with you, hanging around with you, dearie? I never know, I never know just where I'm at. What's the use of banging around with you, banging around with you, banging around with you, dearie? Oh, I'm afraid you're forcing me to leave you flat. Please don't be in a huff. It was only a bluff. Everything is in vain. If you mean to remain, so unstained. If you want me hanging around with you, hanging around with you, hanging around with you, dearie, you've got to learn, you've got to learn to act your way. Anyway, one more thing about R. This is something that a lot of you have asked me about, and I always give you half an answer because, you know, I'm often living half a life and I'm too busy to think about it. This is the answer. Wash. So you're going to wash something, but we all know somebody who says wash, or we know somebody who knows somebody who says wash. Why do some people say wash? It is a legitimate question. Well, Here is the story about Warsh, told here for the first time. It's been told often, but not on Lexicon Valley. Warsh. Warsh is distributed in what's called the Midlands, and that's a vague kind of term. But roughly, if you start at something like southern Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, and then you go westward inland in a big stripe that gets broader. So next thing you know, you're doing your Ohio, your Illinois, your Missouri, and then it kind of fades out as you get to the Rocky Mountains. But that kind of stripe, that middle stripe of the shirt, that is the Midlands. And there are various places that you can cut it off. What is called the Midlands in terms of dialect used to be broader than it is now. But that's where you get your wash instead of wash. And you want to know why. And the answer is actually the kind that you want to hear. That wash almost certainly comes from Scots-Irish. It's people who came to the United States. You know, Scots-Irish is a weird term. They weren't Irish. They were people from the Scotland region who settled in Ireland for a while. That didn't work out. So then they came to the United States. So Scots, really. They come to the United States. They are recorded to have said Warsh. And there are a few other things that they said that seem to be traceable to them in the Midland regions today. Another one is a construction that you all also often ask me about, which is this needs washed or something. This needs washed or something like that. That use of needs, that's probably a Scots-Irish thing too. But of course, inquiring minds want to know, why was anybody saying wash over there in the northern part of that island? And the truth is that that R is something that came from there not being an R, but it's kind of like idea is, it's probably based on what you would expect from the rest of the language. So wash is kind of an odd word. Not that many words rhyme with wash. And what you know, if you learn a whole bunch of words in English, is that generally if you've got a vowel that is that one or close to it, this ah, and then you've got the sh type sound coming afterward, usually there's an R in there. So harsh, parch, hearth, you want it. So then there's this word wash. Well, shouldn't it kind of be wash? 
Shouldn't there be an R in there? A kid might think so. And that's one way that language change starts to happen. If it's harsh, then it should be wash because there aren't that many words that are just wash and rhyme with it. So next thing you know, you've got people saying wash. And you might wonder, why doesn't it happen, though, with all words that rhyme with wash? Because there are some. And it's the way these changes tend to happen. It tends to start with the most commonly used words. And the other words that rhyme with wash aren't as commonly used. And so, for example, mosh pit. I barely know what that is, but we can be pretty sure that's a relatively recent word and it's not used that much. Or here in America, how often has anybody used that British word posh? It's a word that's relatively new anyway. It starts in the early 20th century. And so it's not going to spread to that one. Or nosh is another one, but it's mostly a Jewish American word. It's not used by most of the country. And so it's less likely to take on this R modeled upon Warsh. So what it means is that if there are going to be other words that take on this R because it's kind of what you expect from words like harsh, it's going to be common ones. And really, there are only two. One of them is squash, where it's reported that there are people who say squash. And then there's gosh, which is said quite a bit. Now, as far as squash, it is said that people say that. And I'm pretty sure I remember somebody who was a warsh sayer who would also have said squash. She wouldn't have said, we're going to have butternut squash tonight, but she would have said they tackled him and he got squashed and he hurt his leg. Now then there's garsh. <laughs> and the truth is, gosh, garsh. Garsh seems to be one person and it's not really even a person. It's Goofy. Goofy's <laughs> making garsh. That's really the only one. The eternal question, by the way. If Pluto is a dog, what is Goofy? <laughs> I love that question, but he says, <laughs> gosh. Now, if he does say that, then the question is, first of all, do real people say it? And I don't know whether people say, well, gosh. I mean, it, you, it's fun to imagine, but does anybody say that? But here's the thing. Why does Goofy say it? Because Goofy was voiced by Pinto Kolvig. Pinto Kolvig, yes, I looked this up, grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so he wasn't from the Midlands. Why did he have Goofy saying, <laughs> gosh? Well, that means that he was subconsciously supposing that a person who was a yokel, for example, might have this intrusive R, as we call it, on the model of warsh. And so if it's warshing day, then you're going to say gosh. So some of this is a matter of the R comes in because it feels like it should be there, especially in common words where you start thinking along those lines. It's funny. There's goofy. <laughs> gosh. Then there's Mickey, if I'm reading to my kids. Donald is hard. I have never been able to do Donald. It bothers me because there are people who can just pop out with a Donald. They're more popular than most of us. Often they're only popular because of that. Bothers me. In any case, there's one other thing about that R, which is that it'll often be a matter of whether you're speaking colloquially or not and how you feel about something. So I knew somebody who said warsh. It was my first exposure to it in college. I can definitely imagine her saying it got all squashed. I'm almost sure that she said that. But she was a real fan of Washington, D.C., I think largely because the metro was new and it actually worked. Loved Washington, would always talk about it. She definitely didn't say Washington the way many 
people today do. She called it Washington because she wasn't thinking of it as colloquial. She was thinking of it as gleaming white buildings and a metro that actually worked. That is our story of R. And I'm going to end this show with something that I would ordinarily not do, but I'm going to give you a tiny hint of another slice of my life because I need this pulpit. We're going to go real fast. Fats Waller, black jazz pianist. He wrote the score to a hit Broadway musical in 1943, the same year as Oklahoma. It was called Early to Bed. Now, boys, I'm going to give you a couple of tunes from my show, Early to Bed, that fine show on Broadway that uh, pays my backhouse dues, you know. And uh, I can't kid no more, hold everything, but here's a couple of them from the show. There's a gal in my life, and you're slightly less than wonderful. Look out now, there it is, yeah. You're only slightly less than wonderful. Your body borders on the mirrors. I think I'm on the brink of buying you mink To drag on the ground Or wrap around you and you slink Within me, elemental forces surge Are you allergic to the augie urge? Must I, with deep regret, let etiquette guide me as yet? And say to you politely, dear, you're only slightly less than wonderful. Yes, less than wonderful. It is the gal in my life. It was a big hit. It ran for a year. That meant a hit back then. It toured the country for a year successfully. So Fats Waller wrote this show. This show was a mainstream show. There were a few black characters, but most of them were white doing the dumb things that people did in most musicals at that time. But it was a big hit. Fats Waller died and the material just basically scattered to the winds. I have spent the past seven years trying to gather together the score to Early to Bed because the few songs that have been available are very good. There were 14 songs. I had managed to gather together 10 with the help of some people who came into this before me, such as the Musicals Tonight people in New York. Anyway, just this week, somebody who read an article I wrote about Early to Bed found one of the missing four songs. And so for the first time in 76 years, one of those songs is now available. This is so exciting that I decided I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I will never have a pulpit like this again. I am asking any of you out there who are musicians or who have addicts or who would for any reason have some stash of material, do you by any chance have one of the three still missing songs from Fats Waller's hit musical Early to Bed? Those songs are called this. The Girl Who Doesn't Ripple When She Bends, Me and My Old World Charm, Supple Couple. If you find these songs, then I promise you fame and fortune and a great many boxes of peach jello. Had to put it out there anyway.
We're going to go out on this Billy Joel song. This is 1984. This is from An Innocent Man, an album that had various hits. This one was never a huge hit, but it was released as a single on a 45, which I still have. This is Leave a Tender Moment Alone. I don't think this song has ever quite gotten its due. I thought it was a good job. Even though I'm in You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. See, that's a nice song, isn't it? For those of you who remember it, nobody liked this one. Everybody always liked Uptown Girl. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. A girl who doesn't ripple when she bends, me and my old world charm, supple couple. That was what they were. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. If I need some room to escape When the moment arrives I tell her it's all a mistake But that's not how